0: Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, plagues and plaques, humans fight happy, genocidal, music-loving monsters from space, and the complete apocalypse is upon us. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Eric Flint and David Carrico about the span of empire. This is a new entry in the Jow Empire science fiction series that Eric began writing with the late Katie Wentworth. The first two books were The Course of Empire and The Crucible of Empire, In the span of Empire, the human and the Zhao have established an alliance instead of the um, colonial subject and governor relationship that they started out with. Humans were conquered by the Jiao in the first book. Eric and David will tell us all about this and lots more in a moment. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. All coming up. Here's the news. Hey, David Drake has won the second annual Year's Best Military and Adventure SF Reader's Choice Award. David won for his short story, Save What You Can. The story is the first Dave has written in his hugely influential Hammer Slammer series in over a decade. The story was originally published in the tribute volume to Dave, Onward Drake, edited by Markel Van Name. That anthology also contains a story by yours truly in honor of Dave, by the way. Dave's story was selected via proctored online voting. Fans chose from all the the stories collected in the year's Best Military and Adventure SF 2015, edited by David F. Sherrod, a regular host on this podcast. This is the second annual volume edited by David F. Sherrod and containing stories selected from across all professional magazines and short fiction venues and science fiction and fantasy. David reads everything and he picks out the best. David announced the winner at the Bane Traveling Road Show at DragonCon this year. I was there and I saw the plaque and the cash. David commented, If you give out an award for Military SF, you shouldn't be surprised when David Drake wins. As the winner of the award, Dave received a plaque and $500 in cash, which really pleased Dave. Also wanted to announce that Bane eBooks is now carrying Penbeam books. These are ebooks of all manner of stories and even a couple of novels by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This is almost all of their non-Liaden stuff, but if you love Sharon and Steve's writing and the Liaden universe, you should check this out as well. They are available at Bain eBooks. And finally, I want to remind everyone that Apocalypse, an epic poem by Frederick Turner, has reached the end of its serialization at Bain.com and is now available as an ebook at Bain eBooks. And also at Amazons, iTunes, and wherever ebooks are sold. We are proud to have presented this science fiction epic in iambic pentameter by a major poet of our time. And uh, it's also just a really good story. And now you can get the entire book as an ebook. Hooray. This is part one of a two part interview with Eric Flint and David Carico. Talking about their new entry in the Zhao Empire series, the book is called The Span of Empire. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint and David Carrico to the podcast. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hi. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over three million books in print. He's the author-creator of the New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius Alternative Roman History series. Uh, that's a big bane series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633 and 1634, the Baltic War. He's the author or co-author of many more books in the series as well. Eric was a labor union activist for many w- years as well, which informs some of his fiction, including, I think, a few few things in the span of Empire, which will. Maybe get to David Carrico claims his writing career literally began with a cliche. He finished reading a particularly bad novel, threw it across the room and declared, I can write better than that. It took a while, but eventually he began selling stories, many of them set in the 1632 universe and published in Grantville Gazette. He's the author, with Eric Flint, of 1636, The Devil's Opera, and now at booksellers everywhere, is The Span of Empire. This is the third novel in the Zhao Empire series, previously co-authored by Eric Flint and K.D. Wentworth. So, Eric, uh, maybe, can you tell us about the conception of the Zhao Empire series, Um, some of the stuff you you write about in the uh, introduction, maybe, and how the first two books came about?
2: Um, Well, I got... I had the idea a long time ago, and I plotted the novel in 1997. In the summer of 97, um, my our daughter had graduated from the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, so my wife and I went to uh, Alaska for the graduation ceremony, and then after that we all went down uh, and traveled around Alaska, and we spent several days in Homer, which is on the tip of the Kenai Peninsula, and one day, my wife and daughter went out shopping, and I stayed in the hotel, and I spent the day plotting out the novel. And the basic idea I had was to do a science fiction version that was modeled on the Roman conquest of the Greeks, um, which is a fascinating period of history because the Romans were, were certainly much better organized and capable politically and militarily. The Greeks were kind of, they actually were pretty good when it came to military affairs, but they tended to be pretty inept when it came to politics. I mean, they have been dividing the squabbling city-states forever. And anyway, the Romans basically took them over. But in the centuries that followed, it after a while became very hard to tell who conquered who because as time passed the roman empire became more and more bureaucratic and that became particularly the case after the fall of the western roman empire and and but people think of the fall of the roman empire happening around 400 500 AD but the reality is the eastern roman empire survived another 1000 years and it was the larger half of the roman empire to begin with and they always considered themselves Romans, and yet the the ethnically they were mostly Greek by then. The language they spoke was Greek. So I just found that whole process fascinating. A somewhat similar thing happened in China when the Mongols conquered China, and you know, within about a hundred years, the the dynasty they created in China had kind of become Sinified. Um, so I wanted to tell a novel that had that as sort of the central focus on. And the other thing I wanted to go into was there's a tendency people have, I think especially the United States, and my audience is mostly an American audience, um, it, they tend to think in kind of linear terms, because their own history went quite smoothly, comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the revolutionaries are always the good guys. And um, unless they're bad revolutionaries and the bad guys. But it's it's it, it, what you don't get is a conception that many times in history, the right thing to do if you've been conquered is actually not to rebel. It's to figure out a way you can get along with your conquerors um, or the people who've taken over. That is how most of history has more often worked. Yeah. And I wanted to go into that as well, because it's a different... Uh, pattern, different dynamic. And I thought it'd be particularly interesting since my 1632 series does the exact opposite. It does follow the trope of, you know, the good guys
1: that are revolutionaries. Yeah. And kind of, um, the, it, also the, the colonization experience from the, uh, colonized point of view for once.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. What's it like from their point of view? And, and it's much more complicated than it often looks in history. Um, so, you know, you can look at the Indian experience after the British con- colonized them and the British ran India for a couple hundred years. And eventually the Indians got their independence back, but to this day they, they use English as their official language because there are a lot of practical reasons why it works better than any other. Um, so history tends to be a lot more contradictory and complex than it often, you know, people think of it.
1: I would, I would. I would break in and say that there is part of the United States that knows what it was like to be conquered, <laughs> but not your part, perhaps.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, no, not my part. Yeah, no, that is true. The South did, and in fact, um, I, 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 sometimes, uh, I, I sometimes get a little tired when I hear my fellow countrymen beat their chests a little too loudly, especially when they make sneering references to the French. And I like to point out that no American army has ever suffered the kind of casualties the French did in World War One. That's true of North America. It's not actually true of the South. Uh, the Confederacy's casualties were just about as bad as the French were in World War One. So yeah, it was a very different experience. Um, so you're right about that.
1: So what's the what are the analogs in span of in the span of empire?
2: The analog?
1: Yeah, the Jow are.
2: I the Jow. There's one really big difference in in this series. I mean, it, I use the the Roman conquest of the Greeks sort of as a model, but you don't want to take that too far because they're just basically kind of an inspiration. Because there is one enormous difference, which is there's no analog really in Greco-Roman history to the Echot. Uh, who are these sort of maniacal? I don't know what you call them, sort of the Huns on steroids, kind of, uh, except the Huns are nowhere near that bad. Um, Antagonist with a capital A. Yeah. Um, So that part really is different. Uh, The Jiao are, yes, the Jiao are, roughly speaking, analogous to the Romans, and the humans are roughly analogous to the Greeks. And the thing that's kind of interesting about that is the Greeks had actually a more advanced civilization in most respects than the Romans did. And that's also quite true in many ways of humans. Even though they are defeated and they're conquered by the Jiao, there are a lot of ways in which their culture and their civilization is, is certainly more sophisticated and complex than that of the Jow is. So the adjustment winds up working both ways.
1: So how did the, um, what's the history of the series itself? Um, you began writing it with uh, with Katie Wentworth.
2: Well, what happened was, I plotted the book in 1997. Okay. Uh, in the summer of 97 is when I plotted the novel. Then my first novel, Mother of Demons, came out in September of 97, same year. And by then I'd already agreed um, to, uh, I had already signed a contract to do what was originally supposed to be three books of David Drake, what became the six-book Belisarius series. And I spent the next two years working on nothing except the Belisarius series. And then, at that point, I got the idea for doing 1632, and I wrote 1632, and that generated a whole nother wave of different openings. So, this novel kept being put on the back burner. And then I ran across, I don't even remember where I met Kathy, or how I met her. I have a vague feeling David Drake may have been the one to introduce us, but I won't swear to it. I don't really quite know how I came across her, but she... uh She was looking for work. She already had gotten a novel published by Bain. She'd gotten published initially by another another publisher who wound up dropping her. This this happens quite often in publishing. So she was looking for work, and I had read her two print novels that she'd published through Bain, Black on Black and Star Wars Stars, and I really liked the way she depicted the aliens in those books. And I knew that one of the keys to making this novel work, The Course of Empire I'm talking about, would be to have the aliens very, very vividly depicted and, and to fit John Campbell's famous um, definition of, of aliens in science fiction, which is they have to think as well as humans, but they are not like humans. And I thought Cassie could probably do that. So I asked her if she you know, would be interested in doing collaborative novels. She said she would. And so she then did the first draft of the novel, some parts of which I did, just didn't work and I needed to rewrite them. Um, basically the parts involving the I don't know how to describe it. I had plotted that novel for assuming I would be the one to write it, so it tended to be very heavily emphasizing historical, social, political things, which is what I like to get into in novels. That was not Kathy Strong's. So those parts, I I needed to go back and rewrite a bunch of that. But but all this stuff, the the the, the wonderful depiction, the jowl, the body language, all that, that, that was all hers. So um, that's where Course in an Empire... How it was merged, and to this day I think it's one and a half dozen best novels are written. So, um, the second novel, Crucible of Empire, I actually plotted that one to fit more Kathy's strengths. Uh, so that novel's more of a straight adventure novel, which Kathy is more comfortable with working with that. Um, and then when uh, I don't know if you want to go further, but Kathy passed away. I, um, she got cancer and then eventually well, technically she died of complications but the cancer is what killed her um, and she had only just started working on the third book and David approached me and indicated he, he liked the series and he would like to take a crack at working on it so uh, what he told me he'd like to do would be develop the Eccott a lot more than, than either Kathy or I had ever developed them so I shaped the novel in that direction um, which is reflected in the final product, as anyone can see who reads it. The Eckhart figure much more prominently in The Span of Empire than they do in the first two books. I mean, from the inside out, so to speak. Yeah,
1: And we know that David is really into music from some of his other writing.
2: Yes, and, and David is, yeah, so he was really able to. Well, honestly, I had gotten that musical motif idea for the Eckhart be perfectly honest, I kind of sucked it out of my thumb. I was just looking for something. And it's a bit gimmicky. Uh, It's a good gimmick, but it is a bit gimmicky in the first two books. But David really actually is an expert on music, which I'm not, and he was able to take that and really run with it. Uh, So that's a really uh, big, big uh, uh, improvement in the third book.
1: So um, where are we In in the story at the beginning of The Span of Empire, Ken, um, Earth has gone through quite a tormented period, but humanity survived, and and we've kind of figured out how to deal with the Jow, um, our Jow Jow conquerors. Um, Can you tell us where we are in the timeline of the series as the book begins? One of y'all.
2: you need to define timeline a little bit more. You mean in terms
3: well, of...
1: Well, what the heck is Caitlin doing <laughs> as we began? Well, <laughs>
3: so at, at, at this point, we're about two years after the conclusion of uh, the Crucible of Empire, which was started about a year or two after the conclusion of the course of Empire. So we're about four or five years from the very beginning of the account, and so we're about three to four years from the changes that happen in the course of empire and the beginning of the
0: human alliance
3: with the jowl as opposed to the human subjection to the jowl.
1: There's been a um, there's been a, cha- a sea change because the 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 colonial ruler has been changed out from somebody that was a jowl that was basically kind of crazy, right? Yeah. And humans are working. So tell us about Caitlin Kralick. Um, she's one of the main characters, maybe the main character in the book. She's grown up under the jowl, or at least she has come of age under the jowl. Um, but Her dad is not exactly liked by a lot of humans. Um, Tell us about Caitlin.
2: Um, Well, she grew up as the daughter of... uh, Her father was sort of the collaborator-in-chief of the... um, After the Jow conquered the Earth. Well, in North America. Now, it's... It's... He wasn't a collaborator in the same way that someone like Pierre Laval was in France or or uh, uh, the more famous guy the uh, Quisling was in Norway. I mean, he wasn't pro-JAL. He certainly wasn't happy about it. The JAL kind of put him there and said, do it or we'll shoot you. Um, but his daughter a kind this kind of strange position of being on one hand privileged, but on the other hand, very, very closely watched by the Jow. And she had, in particular, a, a Jow guardian who was uh, quite brutal toward her. Um, it was so almost she, a hostage situation,
3: huh? wasn't it? It was almost, almost what? a hostage yeah, uh-huh. yeah,
2: it was very much, yes, uh, yeah, actually that is the analog, it was something quite, I mean, it's actually very common in history, where you, you know, you you, you bring up some some powerful vassal, you make sure they leave their, leave one of their kids with you to bring them up, and yeah, if they get out of line, the kid's dead, yeah, exactly, that was kind of the situation. So, she also grew up kind of uh, isolated from a lot of other humans. Uh, um She's very intelligent, but it takes her a while to get sort of socialized in the course of the uh,
1: of the novels. Well, she says somewhere that everybody treated her bad in college, and she didn't really have any friends. Yeah. Because of who she was.
2: Because of, you know, right, yeah. I mean, because of the position she was in. Uh, there are a lot of ways in which she's in some ways closer to Jow than humans, and, and, or at least understands them in some ways better.
1: Well, she's got the jowl communication methods down, right? Having grown up around them. She's
2: fluent. Yeah, she's fluent in it, which is very hard for a human to do.
1: So what was the comparison you made, David? I didn't quite hear it.
2: Uh, I
3: was saying that this was basically a hostage situation. Her experience growing up, was she, was, as as Eric said, she was a hostage and, you know, uh, a guarantee for her father's good behavior, but it, it really put her in a very tough place.
1: And she understands maybe as much as any human um, what the Eckhat are really like.
2: Uh, well actually
1: she's in charge of the expedition at least. That's
2: the... Yeah, she's in charge of the expedition. There they, there are not very many humans who've met the ecot prior to this third book, Span of Empire. The other one is is um is Gabe Cully, who was with her when they actually encountered an ECOT ship and he's had personal, you know, really you know, contact with them, which is from a human um uh, Position very well. It's extraordinarily scary, but uh, very weird too. I mean, the thing about the Ecto is not just simply that they're scary, um, but that they are just weird from the point of view of humans. I mean, that's partly why they are so scary is that you can't, you can't really. Um, figure out why they're doing what they're doing you know um and that's part of the secret to this series and i thought david did an extraordinary job developing that further in this third book and that what's you know his work there of just by the end of the span of empire the reader will understand the ecot better than they could have in the first two books
1: Maybe we should jump to. Uh, I was going to talk about some of the other characters. Maybe we should talk about the Ekhat or the Ekot. um Yeah. What the the groups or or casts or whatever they are 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 kind of fascinating. Um, they kind of vary depending on whether they take slaves or kill everybody. Or, can can y'all go into that?
2: Well, they're factions, basically. That's that's the closest. Um that's the closest uh, an analog to human terms. Um, they, but when you when you say they're factions, it's more like they're different. They really are not human at all, so it's hard to make any direct analogs. But in a lot of ways, the four major Eckhart factions are more like religious sects than they are political factions in the way humans would think of them. Um because the the way the ECOT view what they're doing and 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 their purpose is more akin to what humans would think of as religion um, and it's a very, very unbelievably creepy religion, but um would you agree with that, David? I mean yeah, that, that's actually a, a,
3: a comparison that's made in the book, that looking at them from the outside, they're they're all crazy, and they all look very similar, but that the differences between them are kind of like the differences between four different religious denominations that... When viewed from the outside, the differences don't look that large at all. But to the members of the groups, the differences are huge, and that's uh, that's a very, I think, a very probably the closest analogy we can come. Uh, but keep in mind, these factions, these groups, have existed for millennia. They have existed for so long that the the they've actually started to develop into separate species and have started to genetically drift apart.
1: Well, they're kind of, I mean, really, the, the, the casts are based on aesthetics. Um, can you, in a way... Um, so, they're the, they're the sort of the aesthetics of genocide. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How they're going to exterminate everything in existence except themselves. No, they're going to yeah. What is the
2: correct religious way to exterminate all life in the universe except us? Yeah, pretty much. That's it. That.
1: Well, can you talk a little bit about the names of the groups and and how music comes into this?
2: Okay. Well, there are three groups. There's the uh, four groups. There's the uh, uh, the melody, the the true harmony, the complete harmony, and the and what's called the interdict. Um, and I originally they're developed The basic differences between them have to do with their approach to basically to genocide Um, um, it's more complicated than that because there are other factors involved including things like uh, you know what's the proper form of interstellar travel and other things but that's the basic difference and Honestly, I don't remember why way, way back when, but I decided to use music as, for me, it was initially just an analog. Um, uh, As I say, David developed that much more fully than I ever did in the first two books in this last one, in Span of Empire. But um, uh, I I thought it would make a kind of nifty way of doing it, and it did work in the first two books. I thought it worked fine, Um, but I I think David developed potential of it. A lot more than I had. Um, that's basically where it came from. Um, it, it, the trick with something like this is to is to how you. And I, th- I think we've done a really good job, but me, Kathy, and David, in in all three books, this series of developing and there are a number of now different alien species that appear and play major roles in this in this series. Uh, there were four, um, humans, Zhao, Eckhart, and, and the ones introduced in the second book, the Leish. And now there's more uh, at the, by the end of the, of the Span of Empire. And and I think we've done a really good job of... of they're all different. They're not the same at all. Um, and I think they all fit the the sort of John Campbell definition of what an alien should be like in a science fiction novel. Um and like i said I, I i don't know where i got the idea in the first place but I, I you know using music struck me as a way
1: of doing that well it sounds like that david um was kind of uh the the force behind the, this tale this ordeal or journey of ninth minor sustained that we uh, follow in the book maybe you could tell us a, a little just the inner workings of of this particular um little experiment or or what that um that we follow here of, of trying to, I guess they're trying to create a successor.
3: Yeah. Um, the thing that comes through about the Eckhart in the first two books is that they are, by our standards, they are absolutely bug nuts. They're homicidal maniacs that make uh, Hannibal Lecter look like a Girl Scout. Um, but it they are so alien that we can't judge them by our standards of sanity. And that's why throughout the, the books, and particularly in, in the span of empire, they are referred to as unsane rather than insane. And the comment is made more than once, you'll be careful, you can't judge them by your standards. They Their frame of reference is so very different from ours. But there was no expression of why that frame of reference was different different in the first two books. So I had to kind of work that out, and what the, the biggest reason why, and you see a bit of this in Span, the biggest reason why they are so absolutely nuts is because they are... Um, uh, Biologists have a a theory that all reproductive species can be divided into one of two categories depending on how they reproduce. Uh, If they don't generate very many offspring and they spend a lot of time nurturing the offspring, then they generally fall into what's called the K category. If they generate a lot of offspring and they don't seem to spend much time uh, nurturing the offspring, they fall into the R category. So you're looking there at the, diff- the The K category would be earth mammals, for example. The R category would be earth fish and earth insects, most earth in- insects. What I did was I decided that the Echot were a sentient R-class species because that went a long way toward explaining why they were the way they were. And once, once I decided that, then I started figuring out, okay, what kind of culture, what kind of background is a society with that kind of, of species in it going to have? And that's where I started looking at, in the first two books, we have all these crazy, uh, angry, ecot killing everything in sight, including their own people. Why are they that, that way? And how does a species that Where that happens, how does a species like that survive, much less have interstellar travel? And they have to have some way, at least a few of of the species have got to grow to the point, survive to the point, develop to the point where they learn control. And that's where... uh, Ninth Minor sustain came from. But she wasn't my original uh, Eckhart character. One of the really interesting things about reading the first two books is if you, if you read the Eckhart scenes, no Eckhart character survives the, epi- the episode he, she or he is introduced in. which means there's no real continuity, which means there really isn't such a thing as an Eckhart storyline in the first two books, which is okay, it works. But that it wasn't going to work with the outline that Eric gave me for this book, so I had to have an Eckhart point-of-view character, and that's where the character Third Morden came in. She appears in Chapter 10. She She's my primary Eckhart point-of-view character for the rest of the book. She's a young Eckhart, and she encounters Ninth Minor Sustain, and Ninth Minor Sustain sees some, some potential in her somehow and kind of takes her in as a protege and begins to groom her. And Span of Empire really, in a, in a very weird way, is almost a three-threaded coming-of-age story with Gabe Tully on one thread and Caitlin Kralick on one thread and Third Mordant on the, on the third thread. And they, they advance in parallel, making mistakes, learning, growing, developing. And all the, and we see ninth minor sustained kind of sitting at the top of the Eckhart pyramid, trying to bring this, this youngster along. And it's, It got pretty intense. Having Eckhart living in my head for several months (laughs) was a crazy-making experience for me, too.
1: That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and David Carrico talking about Span of Empire. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyber-spy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea
0: Without a Shore. The roar of ions quenching in the water of the slip seemed louder than Adele, on the bunk in her alcove, was used to. She supposed that was because the freighter's hull and frames were much thinner than those of the Princess Cecile. The kaisha's four thrusters were arranged in a diamond pattern, instead of side-by-side pairs like those of most starships. Pasternak was running up the bow and stern units together, checking flow and seeing that the stellite petals of the nozzles moved smoothly when bathed in plasma. Adele wondered what the advantage of the arrangement was. The answer was probably none, given that it was so uncommon. She wore an RCN Commo helmet for its sound-canceling effect. Rather than view data on the face shield, as most spacers did, though, she linked her personal data unit to the console as she would have done on the sissy. On a warship, she would have been at a console with its own sound-canceling system. Checking the ship's internal networks by habit, Adele noticed that Cleveland was netted in. Someone had given him a commo helmet, though he probably didn't know how to use it. Cleveland lay on a bunk in the bridge compartment by his own choice. Daniel had offered him an alcove, but the youth had said that he didn't want to be given any mark of honor. Being treated as a common spacer would be part of his penance for his past behavior. Adele's smile would have been visible if anyone had been looking at her, which of course they weren't as the Keisha prepared for liftoff. People who spoke of penance and divine retribution believed in an ordered universe. Adele's sister Agatha was eight years old when she was killed, and her head displayed on Speaker's Rock. The sergeants who stabbed the little girl to death believed they were acting according to the terms of the prescriptions, which followed the Three Circles' conspiracy. They weren't. The prescriptions applied only to adult members of the families involved, the Mundy's included, but it wasn't a time when legal details were getting much attention. The killers certainly didn't think they were instruments of divine balance. They were emblems of the universe in which Adele lived. Still, if Rickard Cleveland wanted to believe that by punishing himself he approached oneness with his universe, so be it. He wasn't hurting anyone else, and he certainly wasn't hurting innocent eight-year-old girls. Adele had been going over the Fleet Handbook for the Ribbon Stars, the Alliance equivalent of the sailing directions issued for each region by Navy House. Because Alliance influence in the Ribbon Stars had been great even before Pantelleria's temporary annexation, the Handbook was generally more detailed than corresponding Cinnabar information. Comparison of the two was therefore worthwhile. To the degree that any human activity was worthwhile, most people wouldn't have added the final proviso. Adele did. On the other hand, she wasn't going to learn anything from the handbook which would cause her to interrupt Daniel and the Keisha's crew in their liftoff preparations. For no better reason than her paired thoughts, that Cleveland looked lost and that he would not have killed a young girl, Adele opened a two-way link to his helmet. Those were good reasons, after all. Master Cleveland, she said, If the equipment is in proper order, we will probably lift off within the next half hour. Who, said Cleveland. He sat up so abruptly that he bumped his helmet on the bunk above his. Adele had an inset of the boy's face in a corner of her screen, using imagery from the recording unit in the compartment ceiling. She thought of cutting her image onto his display, but there didn't seem to her to be any advantage in that. Instead, she said, I'm Adele Mundy. I don't have any duties at present, and I thought I would offer you, well, companionship. I'm not a spacer, but I have a good deal of experience by now on vessels as small as this. The Kaisha was close to the same displacement as the Princess Cecile, though the latter, though any warship, was more sophisticated. Besides, Adele knew Daniel's routines. I see, said Cleveland, lying back again. He was frowning over a thought. The thrusters idled down to a hiss. The port and starboard pair lighted in their place. Their roar and vibration sharpened as Pasternak sphinctered the nozzles. Even at low output, the Keisha rocked fore and aft as though balanced on a teeter-totter. Lady Mundy, Cleveland said, on the ship which brought me from Karst to Cinnabar. I asked if I might go out on the hull while the ship was in the Matrix. Have you ever done that? Yes, said Adele. She didn't amplify the bare statement. The only privacy she and Daniel had for discussions out of the crew's hearing was on the hull. If you wish, you'll be able to do that on this voyage as well. I don't, Cleveland said. I thought that being in the Matrix and seeing the whole cosmos arrayed about me would be similar to the feeling I get in the chapel in Pearl Valley. There I know that God is real and that all humanity, not just me and fellow transformationists, are one with him. It's a wonderful realization. It's transforming, in fact. Adele heard the smile in his voice. Her initial information about Cleveland had come from his mother and stepfather. The boy himself had said that he was a different person than the one his parents had known, and Adele was beginning to believe that he might have been telling the truth. Was it the same experience? She asked. Cleveland seemed to have drifted into a reverie. Unfortunately, it was not, Cleveland said. God was there, certainly. But I felt utterly alone, lost to my life and to my fellows. I entered the airlock and hid there until one of the crewmen noticed me because I didn't know how to work the mechanism. The crewmen took me back within the ship's hull, where it was a little better. I haven't completely recovered yet. I'm not sure I ever will. Adele considered how to reply. Captain Leary describes his feeling in the Matrix in religious terms, she said at last. He speaks of the cosmos as having existence rather than anything to do with humanity. It'll be interesting to see how he feels in your chapel. Lady Mundy, Cleveland said. How did the Matrix affect you, if you don't mind my asking? Adele shrugged, which of course the boy couldn't see. I'm not religious, she said. I see colored lights, but nothing more. It reminded me of the holographic display of a computer on standby. She sniffed. The sound would have been laughter in another person. The difference is that I could have tuned the computer display, Adele said. I think that decoding the cosmos is beyond me. Six to ship, Daniel's voice boomed in the helmets and compartment loudspeakers. Prepare for liftoff in 30. That's three zero seconds. Six out. The thrusters built to full power, roaring like hungry monsters. Adele leaned back on her bunk and waited for the by now familiar acceleration. Chapter 10. Corsera System. The Kaisha hung three light minutes from Corsera, The Tramp's upgraded sensor suite gave Daniel an excellent view of the planet, but Pantellarian vessels on patrol would be very unlikely to observe the newcomer. Daniel had the highest regard for Pantellarian optics, which were as good as or better than anything produced on Cinnabar. He had less regard for the crews of Pantellarian destroyers like those sent to Corsera. Even first-rate personnel would have difficulty scanning a three-light-minute sphere without specialized equipment like that which Adele's other employers had provided the Kaisha. Officer Mundy, Daniel said on the general push. On a vessel with a larger or less select crew, he might have used the command channel or even a two-way link, but whenever possible he liked to give his people as much information as there was. I'm not seeing anything in orbit over the planet. Are you? Over? No, said Adele. And we have enough data that a ship hidden in the planet's shadow would have emerged by now, regardless of its orbital period. She forgot to say over when she ended her reply. Daniel smiled. Adele normally forgot. Cleveland, Daniel said, did you hear any discussion about Pantalarian patrolling practices before you lifted from Corsera? I assume you were aboard a blockade runner, over. Well, there wasn't really a blockade, Captain Leary, Cleveland said. Ships land at Brotherhood daily or thereabouts to load copper ingots. I bought passage on one that was bound for Karst, the Evelyn. The captain said the Pantellerians. Actually, he said the Spagatis. Don't patrol because they're afraid that an alliance squadron will sweep up anything in orbit. While they're in port, they're protected by anti-ship missiles. Daniel smiled though no one looking at him would have seen any humor in it. As much as Daniel hated anything, it was lazy incompetence, even in an enemy. The Kaisha was in freefall. High drive emissions could have been detected much more easily than the ship itself. Under the circumstances, Daniel thought about bringing them up to 1G with the high drives and thumbing his nose at the enemy. But that would be pointless. I'm not sure that was what the Pantellerian Commodore told Governor Arnaud he said. The Admiral, Adele said, correcting him. Admiral Stansy. The Admiral told Arnaud then, Daniel said. I don't think he really believes the Alliance would break the present truce with the Republic in order to help a motley crew of miners on a pisspot colony. I do think that Stansy and his crews, particularly his officers, aren't up to the drudgery of a blockade. Pantalarians aren't cowards, by and large, but they do tend to be lazy scuts, over. Sir, said Corey, not to take the enemy's side, but it would be very difficult to run down blockade runners with destroyers. Unless you were going to shoot on sighting, maybe, but there's regular trade with Corsaira, with Hablinger, I mean, over. Five to ship, Vessie said. She was opposite Daniel on the command console at present, as the senior fighting officer under the captain. When the Kaisha had reached Corsera orbit and Daniel was sure that they weren't going to be fighting or fleeing in the next few minutes, Adele would trade places with Vessi. Chasing blockade runners would improve the skills of the crews, which drinking in dockside taverns, as I presume they're doing while in port at Hablinger, will not do. Over. Six to ship, Daniel said. The Pandalerian Navy has a culture different from ours in the RCN, from which I suppose we should be glad. Over. In the general pause, Cleveland said, Sir, I believe the Pantellerians escort their own transports down. They send up two destroyers, the captain told me, but they don't bother copper traders even when they're both in orbit at the same time. Uh, over? He's really trying, Daniel thought. If Cleveland had grown up under Tom Sand instead of a flash nobleman who'd never grown up himself, things might have been different. Or not, of course. Daniel Leary certainly wasn't a copy of his father, the speaker. Six to ship, Daniel said, sitting as straight as he could during freefall. I'll take us in now. Don't expect the kind of precise astrogation that you've gotten used to on the sissy. We're going to be an hour and a half on high drive before we reach Corsera orbit, and the computer is going to land us just like the Kaisha's captain is a cack-handed drunk, like every other tramp captain out this way. Daniel took a deep breath. Though he kept his tone measured, he was feeling the excitement rise, as it always did when he went into action. There wouldn't be any shooting immediately, and perhaps never in the course of the voyage. But this was action nonetheless. They aren't going to learn that we're RCN until we're ready to tell them, sissies, Daniel said. But they'll learn then, by heaven. He took another breath. Ship, he said. And how often had he used these words? Prepare to insert. In 30, that is, three zero seconds. Coursera Orbit. Thank you, Vessi, Adele said as she took the lieutenant's place at the back of the command console. The Kaisha was in freefall, so the exchange was simplified by Vessi hooking a boot around an armrest, pulling Adele to the console, and finally pushing her down onto the couch. When Adele first joined the RCN, or at any rate became a member of the company of RCS Princess Cecile, a corvette in the service of the Republic of Cinnabar. It disturbed her that she was so clumsy, aboard ship generally and particularly when the ship was in freefall. She had come to accept, if not approve of the situation. Adele was better at certain things than anyone else in the crew, and very possibly better than anyone else in the RCN. And she was hopelessly incompetent at other things, which even the wipers in the power room did with reasonable skill. There were other people to do or to help Adele do the things she was bad at. But there was nobody you would prefer to have with you if you needed to open an enemy's database. Or to stand beside you in a gunfight. Tovera had the same skills. But not even Tovera could equal her mistress in planning a complex action which might involve slaughter at each stage. Adele strapped herself onto the couch after she started to drift off again. Vessi, who had expected that to happen, had waited to catch Adele by the ankle and to hold her until the harness clicked. Thank you, Vessi, Adele repeated coldly furious with herself. If Vessi and probably everybody else in the crew knows that I'll forget to strap myself in, why can't I remember it? The console was already displaying feeds from the planet below. The sites had been chosen by algorithms tailored to Adele's specifications by specialists in Mistress Sand's organization, or possibly by specialists working for Navy House whose services had been loaned to Mistress Sand for this purpose. Occasionally, Adele heard or saw a comment which made her wonder how important she was considered by the highest levels of the Republic's bureaucracy. The thought shocked and disturbed her because Adele's self-image was that of a librarian of considerable skill whom nobody ever thought about. Except when she got angry, of course, and then Mundy of Chatsworth was apt to come out. But arrogant nobles were a soldi a dozen in Cinnabar society. Freighter Kaisha out of Zenos to Brotherhood Control, said Vesey, using the 20-meter band. Coursera did not have a working satellite communication system since the Pantellerian invasion, so shortwave was the first choice to raise somebody on the ground. Request landing instructions over. Bessie, now in Adele's cove, was handling the commo. She was adequately competent at every aspect of what might be required of an RCN officer, including communications duties. But Corey and Cazalet were far more skilled at them. They were acting as Adele's aides in sorting the information pouring in from databases below, however, so Vessie was on the boards. She was hugely overqualified for a job which on a tramp freighter was ordinarily carried out by a technician who moved his lips when he read. Adele focused on the information displayed in greater resolution than it had been by her personal data unit. She almost smiled when a thought at the back of her mind drifted to the surface before receding. The fact that Adele had been concentrating on the data before and during her move to the command console probably had something to do with the fact that she had forgotten to strap herself in. As usual for both items, Adele sank into information, a world in which it didn't matter that a spacer was detailed to watch her whenever she was on the hull, even though a safety line anchored her to the ship. First things first, Brotherhood Harbor was a half-loop west of the present channel, formed when the Cephisus River changed its course a millennium ago. A canal with locks now reconnected the upper end of the cutoff to the main channel to keep the harbor level high. Ships drank large volumes of water to refill their reaction mass tanks, and they vaporized even more with their thruster plumes as they landed and lifted. Two anti-ship missile batteries protected Brotherhood. They were not interconnected by a single targeting apparatus and were not even operated by the same organization. The battery in a concrete emplacement was crewed and controlled by the garrison. The other unit was equipped with more recent, higher-velocity missiles, but its triple launcher was protected by only a cursory sandbag revetment. The leaders of the Corsair and Self-Defense Regiment had brought the battery with them from Pantelleria, along with a great deal of money which permitted them to recruit locally. Very few of the exiles themselves were in uniform, but the regiment appeared at close inspection to be a respectable fighting force, just as Mr. Sands' files had suggested it would be. Ma'am, I've put together data on the Fretcha, said Corey, on a net he'd created for himself, Adele, and Cazale. That's the destroyer in the harbor, the Corsair Navy, as they call it. I thought it might save you some time before you send a report to Six, over. Captain, Adele said, forwarding the file unopened. If Corey was going to be so punctilious, she would do the same. Lieutenant Corey compiled this data on the Corsair and Destroyer. I don't have the knowledge base to assess it, so I'm passing it directly to you, over. Thank you, Mundy, Daniel said. His inset image was smiling from the corner of her screen. Corey, please brief us, over. Sorry, Corey muttered. The problem with an organization like the crew of the Princess Cecile and the still greater problem when the corvette's personnel had been winnowed from 120 to 20, was to know whether to behave like family or like members of a hierarchical military organization. Adele was certainly poor at following procedure, because in her heart she wasn't part of a military organization. That didn't cause her difficulties, because nobody else aboard thought of her as a junior warrant officer of the RCN either. It didn't matter to ordinary spacers because they understood the bounds of familiarity in the same fashion that tenants on the Bantry estate did. They might joke with Six before going on liberty, but if they met him out of uniform, he was still Six. Just as he was still the squire to a tenant in Zenos. They didn't need the trappings of authority to understand their relationship to their betters. Adele smiled in sad memory of her mother. Esme Rolfe Mundy believed that all human beings could rise to the ideal which the Rolfs and Mundy's already embodied. She would never have used the term betters in that fashion, and she would have been horrified if she had heard her daughter do so. In fact, Adele didn't believe in the distinction between the lower orders and their betters either. Though having lived many years on the bottom of society, she was unable to romanticize its residents as her mother had. That said, most of the members of the so-called lower orders whom Adele had met did believe in the distinction. A few of them resented it. More of them would have said that the separation was ordained by heaven. Most simply accepted the division as they accepted Sunrise and got on with important matters like sex and putting food on the table. Cory and Cazalet, the younger commissioned officers, were the ones most affected. They operated informally under Adele in collecting and sorting the data which poured into Adele's console at every landfall. Their skill at these tasks was part of the reason that Captain Leary's missions had been uniformly successful. But the tasks were no part of their RCN duties, and they still had RCN duties. Corey, the Keisha's second lieutenant and therefore senior to the freighter's signals officer, didn't know whether to give important information to his formal superior officer, the captain or to Adele, the informal superior, at whose direction he had gathered the information. The real answer was, give it to either one, but that wasn't a response which RCN regulations could accept. Sir, the has got all her thrusters and high-drive motors, and her fusion bottle was replaced just last year, Corey said. She's got a full crew, according to the books, but they're 30% landsmen hired here on Corsera, and I don't trust the books. Nor should you, said Daniel. I never knew a Pantelarian ship where the captain didn't collect the pay of at least ten spacers in a hundred, slots that were never going to be filled, over. They only keep an anchor watch on board, Corey said. I doubt they could get underway in less than six hours, and that's if the stores are loaded, which again, the books say they are, but I doubt it. The Fretcher's no danger to us, sir, over. Traitor Kaisha out of Zenos to Brotherhood Control, Vessie repeated, since she hadn't gotten a response the first time. Request permission to land over. Adele guessed from the available data that the crews of the missile batteries were asleep, or even that the batteries were unmanned at present. That sort of sloppiness at a port which might be attacked at any instant would horrify her, but she had too much experience of fringe worlds, and of human nature more generally, to doubt that it was possible. If everyone were like me, it would be a very different universe, a very polite one, and probably very dangerous. A starship landing nearby would awaken the soundest sleeper, and someone startled out of a sound sleep might very well roll to the firing switch and press it. Fortunately, the battery's electronics took a minute or more to calibrate after they were turned on, and both were cold at present. Adele would be watching that status readout carefully. Daniel, Adele said, Captain Leary, I mean. Although there's been no fighting around Brotherhood, and so far as I can tell, no Pantalarian threat to it. All three of the main rebel military organizations have at least a third of their strength in and near the city. Based on ration returns for troops in brotherhood against those in the siege lines around Hablinger, over. Adele wouldn't have had to give her source to this group, but she had too often made a statement to strangers and gotten the reply. You can't know that, you're guessing. Fewer people would have responded in that fashion if they knew what went through Adele's mind when someone did, or if they noticed her left hand dipping toward her pistol. Much of what Adele had learned over the years involved ways to avoid putting herself in situations which would make her angry. Angrier would be a better description. Anger, at life, at the universe, and especially at herself, was the bedrock of Adele's personality, as she well knew. Freighter Keisha out of Zenos to Brotherhood Control, said Vessi yet again. Request landing instructions over. They're worried about each other then, Daniel said. There was a touch of humor, or at least speculation in his tone. Or they individually are each planning a coup. Not so? I don't believe either the regiment or the Navy thinks that it's strong enough to launch a coup with any chance of success, Adele said. I find recent plans in the garrison's database, which suggests that its leaders may believe they could succeed. She would review at leisure the data her systems were pulling in, but experience had given her an eye for relevant detail in a quick scan. She added, I very much doubt they're correct, given the loathing with which every other organization on the planet appears to regard them. But arrogant stupidity isn't uncommon among leaders, even non-military leaders. Point taken. Point taken said Daniel with a chuckle. Some of us military leaders are smart enough to listen to advisors who don't have a military background, however. But what about the transformationists we're involved with? He and his friend Adele were chatting now. Neither of them was thinking about the others on the net. Adele was therefore startled when Rickard Cleveland said, Sir, we have no troops in Brotherhood. Just the company of a hundred at the siege of Hablinger. We have no interest in ruling Brotherhood or Corsera. We just want to worship without interference. That is over. Well, perhaps he has a right to be offended, Adele thought. aloud. she said. Cleveland's statement is correct, Captain, as far as I can tell. Officer Mundy, do you have any doubt on that point? Over. Daniel asked more sharply than Adele expected. He had a right also. He was six, and he could ask any question he pleased aboard his own ship. My only doubt, Daniel, Adele said, deliberately diffusing the situation by using his given name, comes from the fact that I have not yet managed to enter the transformationist database in Pearl Valley. Alone of systems on the rebel side, that is. In theory, it might be filled with plans for galactic conquest, but I very much doubt it. I think these religious dreamers simply have someone very good in charge of computer security. Freighter Kaisha, you are cleared to land, said a voice responding on the 15-meter band. Pick any available slip, but be warned, if you're not on the seawall, your cargo will have to be lightered to and from your holds because the floating gantries aren't working at present, over. The regiment's anti-ship missile battery had gone live. Adele sent its control module, the lockout command, which she had prepared as soon as the Keisha reached orbit, and she learned the model of the unit. Accidents happen, but if they were accidents for which Adele could have prepared, then she felt that she deserved to die. She would regret that she had failed her shipmates in her last instant, though. Roger, Brotherhood Control, Vessi said. Kaisha out. Officer Mundy, Daniel said. His inset image was smiling. Go ahead, Six, Adele said. Any further information I need will be easier to gather on the ground out. She smiled also, pleased to have remembered the correct protocol for a change. Ship, prepare for landing, Daniel said, and hit the execute button on his virtual keyboard. The thrusters roared as the Kaisha braked toward Brotherhood Harbor under the control of the ship's computer.
1: That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.